according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs 15, and we are dealing with the final verses of Proverbs 15, verses 25 through 33. They are disconnected poetically, and yet they are connected thematically. That is, they carry a theme uh, in common related to the building of a house and a home life that we start to see here in verses, at verse 25. Uh, and really it does, it springs out of verse 24 that we looked at three weeks ago. Uh, the path of life leads upward for the wise that he may keep away from Sheol below. That if you have a biblical lifestyle that is conducive to uh, avoiding the early death that comes about when you pursue a non-biblical lifestyle, what I like to call a death style. It's not a lifestyle. If it's unbiblical, it's a death style. And uh, pursuing a death style then will lead to an earlier arrival uh, at Sheol. But living the straight and narrow, following God's uh, precepts, in, uh, uh, will keep you away from Sheol below. And all the principles there. This is what we looked at when we were dealing with uh, main point 17. In Old Testament theology, Sheol is unavoidable. We all get there eventually uh, because Sheol is the realm of the dead. It's the realm of the departed spirits and, and uh, so forth. But when you're a believer walking the path of life, you steer clear from the sins that lead to premature departure from physical life. And so you keep yourself away from the fast track it's like when you go to Disney and they have the fast track uh, lines you can go to and, and uh, so forth. Uh, well, you don't want the fast pass uh, you know, line to, uh, to Sheol by uh, committing such sins. Anyway, so we had some subpoints on that and I was just reviewing the audio to try to remember how far we got. We finished it. We finished A, B, and C. And even C had a couple of subpoints. Although Jesus subjected himself to the penalty of death, he could not be subject to the power of death. And he was not abandoned to Sheol as per the prophecy of Psalms uh, 16 and verse 10. He arose in victory. He led captivity captive. He now sits at the right hand of power, the right hand of the majesty on high. And uh, I believe we covered all those verses as well, including Acts, Ephesians, and Hebrews. In any event, I think we can move on and now start looking at personal home life. Starting in verse 25, wisdom spotlights the Lord's personal interest in houses and boundaries. Wisdom spotlights the Lord's personal interest in houses and boundaries. The two halves of verse 25, the A and the B portion of the verse, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will, and then the B portion, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. And so the poetry here does two things. It looks at the house and it looks at the boundary. But really it's the same thing that it's looking at. It's talking about the proud, it's talking about the humble. Uh, summarized there by the widow. And the whole thing comes together to show that the Lord takes a personal interest in our home life. He is involved in our homes. And we want to be clear on that. All right, so before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to direct our study today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and the blessing we have to assemble together. We ask, Father, that uh, we got some workers outside digging a trench. Father, we pray that can dig quietly or not be too distracting for what we're doing. But Father, uh, turn our attention upon you, upon the truth of your word. Bless our time of study. Thank you, Father, for spotlighting the things that you do, making clear to us how involved you are in our lives, our personal lives, our family lives, our home life, our sex life. I mean, everything, Father. Your word puts uh, your uh, guidance into all that we do. And I thank you for that, that you are the creator God of the universe. You shape all things from Alpha to Omega. You're involved in the grand sweep of history, including the rise and fall of nations, including uh, the whole course of human history. And yet, you've got total sovereignty over all of that. 
while still, Father, you don't lose focus on each one of us individually, personally, what our homes are like, how we raise our children, all the details of, uh, of, of everything. And Father, that is a, a glory. And we just humble ourselves before your glory and ask for your blessing upon our time of study. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so again, as we look at Proverbs 15, 25, and, and we can scan down through the end of the chapter while we're at it, because you're going to notice that these themes uh, will present themselves again and again uh, through the, the end of the chapter. So we have the house, which is in, in the scriptures, it's more than just the, the physical structure you sleep under, right? Uh, that, uh, the house is more than a building. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it centers on your household. It centers on your wife, your children, your slaves, your property, your, uh, uh, you know, the house of David, is, is all his descendants and so forth. Uh, so house is a bigger term than just a structure. Here, though, I tend to think that it does spotlight the structure because it's put in, in contrast to the boundary. And this refers to your property line. This refers to the, uh, the fence or the, the markers, the stones that you would uh, place to mark the edge of your property line. And so the boundary between your property and your neighbor's property is called the, uh, I think it's called the zub is the Hebrew term, but it's the boundary between your property and your neighbor's property. And boundaries are good. In fact, most of what I'm going to talk about today is about boundaries. And so boundaries are great. We love boundaries. God designs boundaries for our protection. And uh, boundaries serve to mark the responsibility and who he holds accountable on this side of the boundary and who he holds accountable on that side of the boundary. And uh, making sure that we don't cross boundaries in a way so as to injure our, uh, our neighbor. So we have houses and boundaries there in verse 25. Uh, and it continues. Uh, you'll notice in verse 27, he who profits illicitly troubles his own house. And we're not talking about the physical structure there necessarily. It's, uh, you know, it's talking about your wife, your children, your slaves, your property, your animals, your, your uh, uh, trees, uh, the, the production of your house. And so we'll discuss that as well. But he who hates bribes will live and how you conduct yourself in your economics, your personal economics and your household income. Is it biblical? Is it unbiblical? Is it ethical? Is it, is it immoral? And the damage that you then do and how you're living uh, based on that. You'll have, um, in verse 28, uh, you have conversations that take place. Uh, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And this is a discussion that takes place in the context of a house, in the context of a, of a home, of a family gathering. How do we relate one to another in the things that we discuss? Likewise with our fellowship, likewise with our prayer in verse uh, 29, likewise with our uh, nutrition and our, and our health in verse 30, bright eyes gladden the heart, good news puts fat on the bones. And uh, we've got another dwelling term in verse 31. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. And the, all of this whole uh, segment here of chapter 15 is centered on where we dwell, where we live. And so you have words like live, dwell, house, boundary. All these expressions is, is really setting a, a, a common thematic uh, or theme in uh, the closing verses here of this, of this chapter. He who neglects discipline, this is family discipline, structured child discipline, uh, despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The fear of the Lord is instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. All right. Anyway, that's what we're going to be looking at as we uh, bring together these details here in Proverbs 15. For today, though, we're going to be talking about houses and boundaries, mostly boundaries, uh, from verse 25. So the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. And so you have a, a, a proud person, and part of how he uh, boosts his own self-esteem, part of how he puffs himself up in his own pride, is the house that he can build for himself. The income that he attains to, uh, if he has, you know, his barns are too small, he's got to tear them down and build bigger barns. He, uh, he has all this stuff that he's accumulated. And he, so and then he can say to himself, you know, self, I have many good things laid up. And, and he's very pleased with everything that he's done. And he's, he, he has created this huge house. So much so, you come into some passages of pride whereby 
the person now believes that he's untouchable, that there's nothing, there's no harm that can befall him, that he's now, you know, whatever, whatever might happen, he's, you know, he's, he's insured for everything. It's all covered. He's got uh, savings. He's got resources. He, uh, there's no harm that can befall him that he can't, uh, you know, uh, deal with and provide for. And there's a great arrogance that comes with that when you lose the fear of the Lord and you forget that God and the God of grace is the one that provided this for you in the first place. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And if you think that you've done this yourself, then that's arrogance. That's Nebuchadnezzar walking around on his roof and saying, look at Babylon the Great which I have built you know, by my own glory and so forth. And so in those circumstances, don't be shocked when the Lord comes along and, and pops your bubble. <laughs> when the Lord comes along and tears it down. Tears down the very thing you're taking pride in so that He can open your eyes to that pride issue. So uh, He will. He will tear down the house of the proud. That's what He does. He's able to humble those who walk in pride. But here's the contrast. He will establish the boundary of the widow. Now the widow is put in contrast to the proud. The widow would be one that would be humble. The widow would be one that has need the widow would be the one that uh, requires uh, assistance from uh, children or neighbors or extended family or somebody because uh, uh, there's just things that, that she's not going to do on her own. There's things that she's not going to do that uh, her husband did when he was alive and things like that. And, uh, and so that's the, that's the contrast. And here's a God. How awesome is our God that He loves us and that He personally cares for the widow and for the orphan that he personally cares for the one that, that requires the assistance, see? Because it's the widow and the orphan that portray vividly what all of us should admit, that the most self-made man, the most, uh, you know, everybody needs God. Everybody needs assistance. Everybody, if they're not prideful, can, uh, can stand and declare that, uh, but by the grace of God, uh, there go I. You know, it's the grace of God that does everything in our life. So God's involved with this. And God is the antithesis of what the, how the world operates where uh, it's based on uh, taking advantage of others and plundering the weak and, and uh, all the, 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 the politics and power of, of things. So the Lord does take a personal interest and specifically houses and boundaries. I find that interesting and, and much of what I'm going to talk about today is going to center on the boundary aspect of this. Okay, uh, Understand Boundaries are good. Families, clans, tribes, and nations function optimally with clearly defined boundaries. Optimally. It's best, absolutely best for a family, best for a clan, best for a tribe, best for a nation at every level. It's best. And, and within families too, there's subdivisions within families too where you want to have the boundaries established and clear where we know where the lines are drawn. We know what the responsibilities are. We know uh, when you overstep your bounds, uh, how, how is that determined so that there's no hard feelings and everyone's all up front in agreement, this is the boundary, right? And if you think about it, is that not the principle behind Genesis 2? And for this reason a man shall leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. That is the establishment of a generational boundary that says that you are now entering into your own generation, you're no longer under the parental authority, that you are now a husband and wife in marriage, and now you have your boundary. And uh, of course, you still love mom and dad, you're still in in relationship with mom and dad, but the boundaries are now in place whereby um, mom doesn't tell your wife how to be a wife or how to run your marriage or how to clean house or cook your food or whatever you're doing. Your wife is your wife and mom is not her tyrant and dad is not your tyrant or vice versa or however all that works. Uh, the, the problem that happens in a lot of cases, marriages become a train wreck because they never left their mommy and daddy. They never left their parents and their parents, they stood at the altar and made vows to one another and they brought their parents into the wedding with them, into the, into the marriage with them. And um, boundaries are a blessing. Boundaries, so family boundaries, clan boundaries. And of course, the ancient world has more than our modern world in, in extended clans and the connections there. Um, but still, there's applications we can make even in the modern world. 
tribes and nations, when you have the clearly defined boundaries that uh, solve so many issues. God appoints them, He maintains them, He changes them, He even ends them in His sovereign will. And I love using Acts 17, 26, because to me it encapsulates the whole canon of Scripture in one verse, <laughs> right? All of Genesis through Revelation, you can course find many other passages to relate to this but you have a summary statement that that shows god's sovereign control of human history and it's found when paul's preaching in athens at the uh, on mars hill here you've heard of the tomb of the unknown soldier this is the temple of the unknown god that uh that they had there in athens and paul was kind of amused by the process and said let me tell you about this god you do not know because there's only one god and he doesn't need uh, your temple. So Acts 17, if you're familiar with this text. Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. <laughs> you know, if you're going to be polytheistic, if you're going to make sure that your town is covered with every temple imaginable, every God you know about, this is kind of the, you know, hedging your bets. This is, this is just, just in case you missed one, um, go ahead and build this one too to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Let me tell you about the God you do not know. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, keep in mind, does not dwell. Okay? The idea of dwelling, the idea of living, the idea of where do you, you know, it's more than just a residence. It's more than where you reside. It's where you dwell. I like the word dwell. Is it too old-fashioned? Dwell. Okay? Because some people don't dwell where they live. Some people don't, you know, it's, it's about where you um, where you have refuge, where you have comfort, where you have acceptance, where you have love, where you have nurture and family, where you have fellowship in the Word of God. All right, that's where you dwell. Okay? And it's a place of the greatest intimacies. It's a place of the greatest blessings. It's also a place of the greatest hurt, the greatest anguish and heartache. It's going to happen in your home. And that's dwelling. And keep in mind that we're talking about the living God. And the living God dwells. Ever think about that? He dwells. Where does He dwell? Where does He have love and acceptance and fellowship and, 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 and family and, and belonging and comfort? God dwells. He dwells in you. He dwells in me. He dwells in each one of us in the body of Christ. He's the living God and He dwells. Anyway, He's involved in our lives. He's involved in our personal life. He's involved in our national life. He's involved in all of human history. So He made the world and all things in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He is the source of everything. And He made from one man, or one blood is the King James, He made from one there's no noun even in the Greek, it's just the number one. He made from one. One man, one blood, one person. I, I kind of like the one blood, you know. Um, I'm not overly King James fond, but I do like one blood because to me, this solves all racism in the world. <laughs> There's no, you know, racism is, is over and done with. We all have the same Adamic blood flowing through our veins. But He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Okay? To live. So the national life of every nation. Those that are here today, those that aren't here anymore. He's in charge of all of that. So, you know, the Hittite nation or, you know, the Aztecs or the whatever. The, the Cherokee, the, uh, you know, Comanches. You know, there's some nations I'm glad that aren't here anymore. Because they were, they were ruthless and bloodthirsty and, and, and savage. And, and it's, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, because we live in a part of Texas that had a lot of Comanche raids 
and uh, it's, it's better these days. All right. <laughs> Um, but God's in charge of this, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their what? Habitation. Okay? Habitation. What's a habitation? This is, this is where we dwell. This is our, our, the place of our dwelling. This is the place of our, um, of our family life, where we live, where we, where we sleep, where we eat, where we raise our children, where we... Uh, where we grow old, okay? And so everything from birth to death and in between uh, is a part of our dwelling. It's a part of our habitation. And the creator God of the universe is interested in all of that. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, and, and, and is, this is pretty unique, I think. Biblical Christianity stands out in a lot of ways. The Quran does not have this in, in it. The Muslim concept of God. Allah? Don't even know who you are. Allah has no interest in, in, a, in a puny human. Okay? Muhammad's really the only human Allah has a personal interest in. And all the rest of that, he's too transcendent, he's too beyond, he's too whatever. And that's why when, you, when a Muslim gets to their version of whatever, the pearly gates, uh, if he thinks he's going to get through there and get all his virgins and all of whatever, uh, he can't until... Muhammad gives the thumbs up because Allah doesn't have a clue who this Muslim guy even is. He has no interest. He has no awareness. See? Anyway. Uh, our God, the real God, the true God of, of the Bible, is the God of creation, but He's personally invested in our home life, in where we live and how we live and who we live with and, and what we're doing in the home. Are we training up the next generation in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Do our children know the Scriptures? Do our children know the Lord? Okay? And all of this comes out in, in Proverbs 15. All of this comes out in many other passages here as well. So he determines their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would, and here's a purpose clause, that they would seek God. That a prime benefit to a nation is if they make the knowledge of God accessible. If they provide freedom for the Word of God to be taught, our nation provides freedom for the Word of God to be taught. Our nation provides freedom for churches and pastors and Bible teaching. And so our nation provides for inhabitants to seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. And so if a nation is crafted to provide for God consciousness and for Bible teaching, for gospel information, that's going to be a land of blessing in the plan of God. All right. So let's see. In Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also His children. He quotes a pagan poet there, but anyway, it's, it's interesting. We live and move and exist. And how many people are not doing all three of those? <laughs> they're, uh, they're existing. They don't move much. And do they really live when it talks about living? When, when the richness of Proverbs says you will live, that's the abundant life Jesus spoke of, that you will live and you will have, you will have life and have it abundantly. So boundaries are good. Boundaries have always been good. Boundaries will always be good. When Jesus returns in the millennium, guess what? He's going to have boundaries in the millennium. That's right. He's going to have boundaries and all the tribes are going to be listed in their boundaries and the prince is going to have his portion. Everything is going to be designed with boundaries. The Old Testament saints will be resurrected for their allotted portion at the end of the age. Those, that allotted portion has boundaries. Boundaries are good. I've shared this with you many times. Eden, Genesis 2, 8 through 17 Eden was established as a possession with responsibilities and boundaries. Genesis 2, verses 8 through 17. So right from the beginning, he created man, and what did he do with man? Put him somewhere. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, if you have a whole planet to yourself, and you're the only guy in the world, it doesn't matter where you are. You're on earth, here I am, okay? But then he plants a garden and he puts the man in the garden. 
In, not out, because this is something with boundaries. It has an in and an out. These principles were linguistically enforced in the aftermath of Babel, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Indeed, every nation has a land grant from El Elyon, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8. We were discussing that uh, El Elyon recently in Hebrews because uh, Melchizedek was priest, king priest of El Elyon, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. All right, possessor, creator and possessor. So Eden was established as a possession with responsibilities and boundaries. This, uh, and everything on this slide is under maximum satanic attack in our generation. Everything on this slide. From boundaries to land to land ownership. The idea of possessing land. Because they worship land, because Gaia is their goddess, you can't own land. And the idea that you own land, they, they uh, will, will attack and hate and reject and say, oh, well, that's just... That's just, uh, you know, that's just patriarchy, right? It's like, you know, like owning your women, owning your children, owning, you know, we don't own people anymore. We abolish slavery. We abolish parenting. We abolish marriage. We abolish everything. We're now, and, and, and what goes with that is land ownership, okay? And if you claim that you have sovereignty, if you claim that you have rights, if you claim that you can, well, you're just an exploiter. You're exploiting the land. You're stealing, you know, from the fruit or the trees or the oil or the mineral rights or, or whatever. You're raping the land. Okay. <laughs> anyway, maybe maybe you have not been exposed to quite the the, the number of of uh, lunatics that I've been exposed to, but there's they're all out there. Trust me, they're out there. And 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 they will uh, glorify. Um, the, uh, the illiterate, uh, savage cultures that, uh, you know, Native Americans, other cultures that didn't have land ownership. Uh, this, because, you know, they, they lived at peace with nature. They were in harmony with blah, blah, blah. All of that is just lies. You know, they, uh, they fought over land all the time. They fought over rivers. They fought over things. They would, they would conquer. They would burn. They would rape and pillage and, and, uh, and different things. Before this was Cherokee land or Comanche land, it was somebody else. And then the Comanches came and raped and pillaged and took the land. Um, in any event, let's stick with the Scriptures. Um, the idea of a possession, to possess something. What does possess mean? Ownership, yeah. Possess. Think of potent. Think of omnipotent. If you possess, that means you have the potence, you have the power. You have, you have power over what you possess. So if you possess something, then you have power over it. I possess this pen. I can use it. I can enjoy it. If I want to, I can break it. I can give it away. But I have total power over this pen because I possess it. Possession. Land possession. Let's look at Genesis 2. Responsibilities and boundaries. And they are good. <clears throat> I've probably done this, what, 10 times in the last two years? I've done this a lot. And maybe you're sick of, he of hearing it, but um, it's useful to see these things, to see this description of Eden. So Genesis 2, um, he's done working, he's going to rest, he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Day 7 is special. <coughs> In fact, uh, Big Bang evolutionists can't explain the seven-day week. Why did every ancient culture have a seven-day week? There's nothing with sun, moon, and stars or planets. There's nothing astronomical that divides the week into seven. And yet, God did, did so. Um, so the Lord God formed man, verse 7, of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. <clears throat> man became a living being, a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east. All right, so we have locations, we have directions. 
and uh, he planted a garden towards the east in Eden. And uh, so now we have a name. There is a name, a proper name that designates a place. This is a locative term, Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. And so we have a place, and the man has been placed. And out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there are places and there are things that are there and there are things that are not there. In the midst of means that's where it is, that's where the man is. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. And this is where we start to see the boundaries, and we start to see the purpose, and why even to this day waters form boundaries between many places, many nations, and, and water rights get fought over, wars are fought over water. Because, uh, you know, when one nation is stealing too much water and then the other nation can't irrigate their crops and you've got to have agreements about that, about how much is yours and how much is ours and we're sharing this and uh, we've got to manage this. And because believe me, Jordan and Syria would starve Israel of all their water if they could. All right. So the name of the first is Pishon. Now why do rivers have names? Why do places have names? Why do people have names? Why do animals have names? Or animals, do they have names? We give them names. <coughs> but Adam named the animals. God is giving the names of the places, of the rivers. And so the first river is called Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. So we have names. Pishon is not one of these other rivers. It's a separate river. It's identified by name. It is a place and it is identified by name. And it has a direction and it, has, it forms boundaries. The land of Havilah. Havilah is not Eden. Havilah is Havilah. Eden is Eden. And notice Havilah has gold. That is a possession. That is a provision. That is a feature, a God-given feature. The godless would call it a natural resource. Uh, the biblicist would say a God-given feature of God's provided land. The gold didn't just accidentally show up there in a big bang cosmic accident of, oh, I guess that's where the gold landed. All right, where the river accidentally flowed to. God's in charge of all of this. And then the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. More resources. Man, if I was back there, I'd, you know, I couldn't be an Edenite. If I'm not Adam or Eve, if I'm Cain or Abel, I'd be looking at Havilah. <laughs> Say, Dad, I think it's time for me to leave home now, and uh, Havilah looks okay. The gold of that land is good. All right, now the name of the second river is Gihon. I mean, what's the big deal? Why, why do these rivers need names? Who cares if it's Gihon or Pishon? Now, river's a river, isn't it? No. Every river is named. Every river has a purpose. Every river has a, uh, a uh, design for what it waters, the boundary it forms, other things. In the modern times, it produces energy. Hydroelectric power can come from these, some of these rivers. All right. Gihon, it flows around the whole land of Cush. All right, Cush is not Havilah, Cush is not Eden. We have separate names for separate places. And so if God wants Cushites to live in Cush and Havilites to live in Havilah, and that's where he puts them, all right. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. Notice Tigris is not Gihon and, and not Pishon. Assyria is not Cush, is not Havilah, is not Eden. Different river names, different place names. The fourth river is Euphrates. All right, so the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So what business does Adam have in Havilah or Cush or Assyria? God put him in Eden. God put him in Eden. Okay. And so there are responsibilities there are duties, there are expectations. And he commanded the man, saying, From any tree you may eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. 
So he has provision. The trees belong to him. He can eat. The fruit is his. He can eat. All right. Then here come the animals. He doesn't have a helper yet. The rest of the story is there. All right. Interesting, isn't it? The man doesn't name the, the rivers. Man's not naming the places. Man's not naming. This is God's preview. Uh, this is God's prerogative. This is what God does. He establishes boundaries. He um, appoints them, maintains them, changes them, even ends them in His sovereign will. When He decides, you know what? Cush is going to conquer Havilah, and now we're going to have a greater Cush, and we're going to have uh, no more Havilah. Havilah is done, for example. I don't know. And the Havilites, they're not going to be Havilites anymore. They might be Havilite descendants, uh, but they're going to be Cushites of Havilite ancestry that are now going to be living in Cush that are now going to be intermarrying with the Cushites, that are going to now have, you know, uh, their descendants. What are their descendants going to be? Are their descendants going to be hyphenated Cushite Havilite? All that insanity started in modern times, all right? The, uh, the subjected people became the conquering people. In, uh, and yes, they had, they could, for generations, they could maintain a, a past uh, legacy or a past... Uh, uh, identity, culturally speaking, but generally speaking, they no longer had a nation, they no longer had sovereignty, they no longer minted coins, they no longer engaged in, in treaties or commerce. They became a subject people that were absorbed by the conquering culture. All right. These principles were linguistically enforced in the aftermath of Babel. So we get through Noah, we get through the flood. And then when Ham, Shem, and Japheth start populating after the flood, we have rebellion against uh, the will of God. So Genesis 11. And you know, after the flood, they were told to uh, go forth, to replenish the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And instead of going forth, they uh, congregated. Instead of spreading out, they had the whole world to, to roam. And, and I would put forth that according to the pattern, that's not recorded, but according to the pattern that we have, my suspicion is that Ham, Shem, and Japheth were pointed in different directions. And uh, that the God of Shem was going to be the source of blessing for them. Japheth was going to be blessed by the God of Shem. But now what we see is... Um, and if you, if you spend time reading the, the, the 70 nations of Genesis 10, you'll notice this. There's uh, t- three broad divisions in Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and then there's 70 total divisions among those, among those three, the national origins of all of these. Now, um, I don't know that I want to read. Well, I guess, yeah, let's look at chapter 10 and then chapter 11. Uh, the sons of Japheth in 10.2, and they're listed there, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. Uh, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephah, Togrimah. Sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Donanim. Now notice, from these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands. Everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And you're going to see that repeated again and again and again. And in chapter 10, it's just statement of fact. Chapter 11 gives us the background and tells us the story of how that happened. Okay, So chapter 10, uh, really chapter 11 precedes chapter 10, but we have the listing here in chapter 10. Separated into their lands. Notice that? So Gomer's lands are not Tubal's lands. Elisha's lands are not Dodanim's lands. They have their lands. And uh, lands are good. Boundaries are good because they're separated. Everyone according to his language. And that was linguistically enforced in the Babel dispersion. According to their families into their nations. And so you have families and clans, tribes and nations. Those are the divisions. Okay, This verse doesn't mention the clan or tribe, but families and nations as far as that goes. And this allows for the children to be raised, it allows for spouses to be obtained, 
marriage contracts to be you know, agreed to for the next generation to come along. And it allows for these families to then have descendants that speak the same language, have the same gods, the same culture, the same uh, heritage, the same traditions, the same practices, uh, very similar in, uh, in backgrounds. Anyway, as far as that is designed. Uh, let's see here. So that's the Japheth line in verse 6. Then we get to Ham. Cush. By the way, it's the same spelling as the land we saw in chapter 2. Mizraim, that's Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah. Same Havilah. I'm pretty sure it's the same Havilah in Genesis 2. And Saba and Rama and Sabtaka. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush became the father of Nimrod, became a mighty one on the earth, a mighty hunter before the Lord or against the Lord, however you take that preposition. And it becomes a proverb like Nimrod, a mighty hunter against the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now, we start to see some things here because not only do we have descendants of Ham, but we start to have activity and a, and a great hero, a great uh, lord, a great lord that stood opposed to Yahweh. And uh, he has a kingdom. Is this our first use of kingdom in the Bible? I'd have to search for that. Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kalna in the land of Shinar. Well, where's the land of Shinar? Who's, who's Shinar? Who was Shinar's dad? Was that Ham, Shem, or Japheth? Who, where does Shinar come from? Where did this name come from? You know, if I'm going to conquer uh, my neighborhood and give it a new name, I'm going to go conquer Jollyville and I'll, be, I'll call it Bob. Okay? Well, I suppose I could do that, but then uh, somebody else may come along and say, you don't own this. And how do you get, who do you think you are renaming this land anyway? But he conquers these cities and he calls it Shinar. And from that land he went forth into Assyria. Well, that's not his land. And built Nineveh and Rehobothur and Calah. But now he's expanding his empire. And Rezin between Nineveh and Calah, that is the great city. Huh. Well, Nimrod, that's a, that's a character. We're going to see this in Babel, founded by Nimrod. The beginning of the Nimrod empire is Babel. And Babel is the headquarters of the, of the global religion against Yahweh. And that's what God judges in chapter 11. Mizraim, that's the Hebrew word for Egypt, became the father of Ludim and Amamim and Lebabim. These are hard to pronounce. That's why this chapter never gets taught. Uh, and Canaan, we know these guys because they get conquered in, in Joshua's conquest. Sidon, his firstborn, Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemrite. See, now all of these guys, because they're the patriarchs, they're the early generations off the ark. They're the early generations. And so when they got married and moved and set up their, their spot, it got named after them. <laughs> so the land got named after the, the patriarch. And it's probably why, since modern-day feminism is so hostile to the patriarchy, why uh, not only do they hate the patriarchy, but even patriotism comes from patriarchy. It comes from your loyalty to the fatherland is patriotism. And people don't want to be patriotic anymore. All right. The territory. So we have families spreading in verse 18. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go towards Gerar. So there's limits because if you go too far, well now you're getting too close to the neighbor and now that's their territory. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands and by their nations. By their lands and by their nations. All right. So families, languages, lands, and nations. And this is, uh, this is the design. This is how it was originally put forth. And then there's Shem, father of all the Hebrews, the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth. Children were born, and so now they're laid out here. Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. Most of these we know because of their geographic 
names, but they were people that gave the geography those names. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hol and Gether and Mash. Arpachshad became the father of Salah. Salah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. Peleg, because in his days the earth was divided. That's the, that's the Babel dispersion, the Babel division. And so Peleg got born and mom and dad named him Peleg. His brother's, uh, earth, his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad and got all these descendants. And as you go down, some, there's overlap because obviously Ophir and Havilah, it's a different Havilah. This is not the Japhetic Havilah or the Hamitic Havilah. This is the Semitic Havilah. And Jobab, these were the sons of Joktan. By the way, I believe the Jobab in, in uh, 1029 is the book of Job. That's the character Job from the book of Job. The reason why the genealogy stretched all the way down to Jobab. There's no other reason to stretch that genealogy all the way down to Jobab except to identify the book of Job. Now their settlement extended from Misha as you go towards Safar, the hill country of the east. See, they had their settlement. That's where they belonged. That's where God told them to go. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. Families, languages, lands, nations. And this is what it's about. This is what the world was designed. This is by God's design so that we can, uh, that each people group can handle themselves, can rule themselves, can um, have good boundaries between them and their neighbors. Aspects there. So these are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. And by design he said go forth and multiply. But then of course they rebelled the whole earth used the same language and few words, the same words. Okay? I mean, think about it. English wasn't around yet, or French, or German, or any of that. Uh, you know, what do they speak? Well, what did Adam and Eve speak? God made them and God talked to them. And they spoke to Him. What language were they speaking? Rabbis all insisted it was Hebrew, and who knows? You know? But uh, to me, I mean, kind of irrefutable. Um, God said, why he or? Let there be light, and there was light. The first words of God were in Hebrew. Why he or? Let there be light. So since God spoke Hebrew and Adam spoke Hebrew, the rabbis all insisted that the original language pre-Babylon, pre-Tower of Babel, was Hebrew. And then after the Tower of Babel, he scattered everybody else's language but he left Hebrew to the Hebrews. Anyway. Um, Boundaries. So, uh, same language, same words. As they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Again, where did that name come from? Did God name it Shinar? Did they name it Shinar? Now I expect after the flood, geography was totally different anyway. There's a whole lot of discovery about, you know, what's left, you know, where... Where do those rivers go that used to go? And, you know, the whole world's underwater, so there's no rivers. There's just a planet underwater. And then the water descends, and now water starts flowing places. And uh, those four, I mean, Eden's not even there anymore. Those four rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, either are the same or get renamed. I mean, there are modern-day Tigris and Euphrates rivers, but we don't know that they're the same as the, the, the pre-flood Tigris and Euphrates. And there's no more Eden, there's no more tree of life with an angel guarding it. All that's done with the flood. So the land of Shinar, wherever that was, and they settled there and they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They used brick for stone, they used tar for mortar, of course these guys were geniuses. And they said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will obey the plan of God and be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Okay? So what's the motivation for spreading out and what's the motivation for uh, cosmopolitan city life? <laughs> okay? 
And it's, it's curious to me. And, and we see this in modern times. We have this in electoral politics. There's a huge difference between the urban mindset and the rural mindset. There's a huge difference in the, in the, the, the big city attitudes versus the small town attitudes. Build for ourselves a name. Where did that come from? <laughs> Didn't come from the Lord. The Lord promised to bless Shem. He was the God of Shem. And uh, promised to expand the tents of, of Japheth. Nothing about a city. All right. I mean, a city. That, isn't that what Cain did when he left after murdering Abel? He went and built a city? These guys want to go and build a city. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. He said, behold, they are one people, they have the same language, this is what they begin to do. Now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. That global cooperation, that humanity is, is capable of this, by the way. And that kind of gets us now into modern times where we have um, this idea of a global citizen of the world. These global languages, and English is pretty much the, the global language. Um, it's interesting. And with global cooperation, what might they be able to do? The Lord said they could do anything they put their minds to. This is humanity in the image of God with a tremendous capacity. But in rebellion against Him, it's tremendous capacity for evil. And so He doesn't let it happen. He stops it right here by inventing languages. And as smart as these guys are, <laughs> God's still smarter. And so it's interesting to me. I think the whole thing with League of Nations, United Nations, World Trade Organization, all these modern attempts are trying to undo Genesis 11. Trying to undo Babel. Trying to undo nationalism. I, uh, I was coming out of my seat cheering yesterday when President Trump stood before the United Nations and says, we reject globalism. We believe in patriotism. I thought, Wow. That should have been said years ago. I'm glad it's said today that uh, ours is not the philosophy of globalism, it's patriotism. And I thought, that's right on target. That is biblical. That uh, There you have it. All right. So uh, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. And so he comes down and he starts to scatter the people. Now how does he do this? Well, he creates these languages. And I believe, based on what we read in, in chapter 10, he did so on the basis of families, clans, tribes, and, and nations, and people. They're going to take, you know, if he's not going to invent the, the Babylonian language and, and then just give it to a random smattering of people, he's going to take this family group, this clan, this tribe, and they all get the same language. And then he puts them in this land and says, here you go. See, that's why. And so, you know, I mean, it's even in modern times. You get it reflected. In, and I think the, um, the liberals hate it, but the, the, the Peace of Westphalia actually was marvelous, saying, look, we've got French, speakle, French people speaking French in France. Okay. <laughs> we've got Spanish people speaking Spanish in Spain. Okay. Let's... let's Organize that. English people speaking English in England. All right. <laughs> so, you know, so we have these terms. And in many cases, that same term speaks of a people and a land and a language. The same terms. Kind of breaks down when you get colonialism and other things that happen. And, you know, do we speak American in America? Well, we do. American English. Not English. But, you know, aspects there. You get Russians speaking Russia, Russian in Russia. All right. So God creates these languages and then he scatters them abroad. And when he scattered them, he scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. How do you think he did that? Did he make them walk? Or did he teleport them? Did he just grab angels and say, all right, here we go? Because we got to get the Aztecs over to the Western Hemisphere. We've got to get the Australians over there. We've got to get the Micronesians over there. We've got to, and so 
Anyway, to me, it makes perfect sense. I just read the Bible and say, oh, okay, I got it. You know, if you don't believe in the Bible, then you got to invent some kind of an Alaskan land bridge thing and some kind of an ice thing and all this nomadic crossings from Asia into Alaska and then they walked down to wherever. And I mean, <clears throat> okay, they, they invent these stories and whatever, but whatever. <laughs> so these principles were linguistically enforced in the aftermath of Babel. Indeed, every nation has a land grant from El Elyon, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8. And you could add to that if you want, Acts 17, 26 again, which we saw. He's in sovereign control over the times, appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Deuteronomy 32, 8, verse 7 says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, he will inform you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High, here's El Elyon, gave the nations their inheritance. When he separated the sons of man, he set boundaries of the peoples. God knows what he's doing. He says, all right, you guys, you Java people. What are Java people? You uh, Gomer people, you Togerma people. This is Togerma. You are Togerma. You're speaking Togerma language. You're living in Togerma land. These are your boundaries. This is you. So take care of your business and be nice to your neighbors. And there you go. Um, he set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons. It, this says sons of Israel. It should say sons of God. There's a Hebrew manuscript question there. Is it Beneha Yisrael or is it Beneha Elohim? And then the best manuscripts have Beneha Elohim, and the later manuscripts change it to the sons of Israel. Either way, it does not change the fact that God created 70 divisions of, of Gentile humanity across this world. 70 divisions of Ham, Shem, and Japheth after the flood. And there you have it. Within, to point C, within national and tribal boundaries, clans and families recorded houses and boundaries by deed. Within national and tribal boundaries, clans and families recorded houses and boundaries by deed. Genesis 23, 17 is quite interesting. This goes back to 2000 BC. This goes back very early time in human history to Abraham's day. What, ten generations after the flood? Genesis 23, 17. And so many of these things that we find, when we find pottery, when we find clay tablets, when we find scrolls, papyri, we what are we finding? We're finding land records real estate records, we're finding bill of sale, we're finding title deeds, that they were important. They've always been important. They've always been maintained. They would have a storehouse where these things were, sometimes it was a temple, sometimes it was a government building, but they would have a place where these records were kept so that my title deed was secured by the authority of the state. And here's Abraham who God said all this land is yours anyway, but he uh, is waiting as an heir of promise. And so in the meantime, what does he do? In the meantime, he conducts business, he buys a, a plot of land, and he secures the deed. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. Everything was notarized, everything was logged, everything was done, everything was recorded, the deed was handed over, witnesses, legal proceedings. It is a legal proceeding. Property purchase is a legal proceeding. Immigration is a legal proceeding. All of this centers on land. Who you are, where you belong is a legal issue in the plan of God. And so Abraham buried 
Sarah, his wife, in the cave in the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. All right, I'm out of time. Uh, we'll pick up here next week. We'll finish up what we're doing. I've got a C, D, and E talking about boundaries. And then uh, we'll talk about the blessings of a humble community within the home of those who fear the Lord. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the, the break that we had the last couple of weeks. But thank you for uh, resuming this class and, uh, and all the blessings you have for us moving forward. We thank you, Father, and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.